Well, hello, hello, ladies and gentlemen. It is good to see you again, and welcome back to Your Money and a Cup of Joe. I am your moderator, Ryan Ruff, and it is great to be back with everybody, as always, on the show. And, of course, I'm going to be joined by my right-hand man, Mr. Joe Kaleo of the Kaleo Wealth Management Group, and we're going to be diving into a really big topic, actually a lot of topics, if you will, in today's show. We're going to be recapping what we've seen thus far in the year in terms of how the market has been performing in a lot of the different sectors uh, and the way they've been ebbing and flowing. And additionally, what the road ahead looks like and what we can expect as we close out 2023 moving into quarter four. So with that, let's go ahead and welcome the man of the hour aboard. Joe, good to see you. How are you doing today? Ryan, doing great. Double espresso. Here we go. Let's go. Choo-choo. Get it going. I, lo <laughs> I love it. I got the coffee on deck over here, too. Uh, let's get into it. Joe, let's start high level like we typically do. Uh, why don't we hit the highlights? Uh, what did you see kind of on the back end, us you know, moving through 2023, leading up here through Q3? And then, of course, what do you see kind of the highlights moving down the road as we finish out the year in Q4? Yeah, Ryan, let's start with, I, I guess, five key points, right? And the first is the resilience in the U.S. consumer and in their spending, and it does seem to be about technology. I mean, that's been the big surprise, I think, for many folks, is that the U.S. economy has really surprised a lot of people in the last year in consumer spending and particularly with technology. Both businesses and consumers, home individuals, have spent a lot on tech. And that's been a responsible part of the economic growth in this country over the last couple of years. We're going to talk more about that. Uh, second point, pushback from investors when they're told that consumer spending is going to slow. Well, the real income growth has been positive. And when it is positive, the economy is fine. Except when you look at the sequential change in real economic growth, Ryan, and now it's not positive. It's actually turned a little negative. So what's that mean? Stepping up, stepping up, stepping up. Now all of a sudden we're kind of plateauing and stepping down just a touch. That's something we're looking at. Third point, U.S. equity risk premium. What's that mean? It means... For the risk and reward that we put into stocks, it's only been lowered twice in the last 100 years. It's lower again. So we are looking at that and some of the things that we're talking to clients about, possibly selling some equities and buying bonds. Fourth point, when you look at growth surprises, the U.S. and Europe are moving in opposite directions. And Europe may be priced too dovishly. Why? because they locked down in COVID again after us, and they've come out of that, and they've priced dovishly. So one of the things we're talking to clients about, look at Europe as an investment opportunity. And fifth, similar, different location, China equities. They may present more upside than downside risk, also a post-COVID trade, so these are some of the things that we're talking about. So let me summarize those very quickly for you. Tech spending by consumers has been responsible for just under two-thirds of the growth. We don't think it's sustainable in tech, but the resilience in U.S. consumer spending has really been about tech. That is unsustainable. Real income growth in the U.S. consumer has sequentially turned negative. U.S. equity risk premium has been lowered twice in the last 100 years, so we may say you might want to trim stocks and buy some bonds here. Fourth, 
look to buy in Europe and internationally? And fifth, if you continue to look, possibly Chinese equities. So all of these things are things that we're talking to clients about and noticing about the economy. Well, yeah, a lot to unpack there, Joe. A lot of sequential things, of course, leading up to this point. What could continue? Some international considerations as well. Let's zoom in back here at home, though. Let's get into the stock report, the markets. What What's the market been shaping up like as we move through Q3? And then what do you guys kind of see on the, on the future side as we move into Q4? Ryan, when we came to you at the end of June and we recapped the second quarter, we had noticed that there were three big outsized winners in the market and energy was not one of them. In fact, every sector but energy was down in the third quarter, but energy was the big up sector. So that was the big winner overall. Also, Ryan, on the economic front, right, we talked about the actor strike and the writer strike, and they were in the headlines. Well, the writer's strike has just ended, and it's resulting in the actors getting a shot at cutting their own deal with studios and streaming services. Well, those strikes have been around for about five months, and it's it did impact studios because now they're just getting the late-night talk shows up, and they're starting to write scripts then for the fall series. So we're starting to see that come to play, and it did have a big impact on late-night TV viewing. We saw declines of 40 to 50% of viewership. And in fact, I'm starting to see different networks advertise on their competitors, but it's big brands advertising on big brands. Ryan, I can never remember a time of that happening before, but I think they're all looking out for each other that they want to stay relevant and important and keep their market share. Yeah, really interesting to see that happen. I mean, it's it's... You know, you're you're playing in troubled waters when you go over and you, and you work, you know, in a competitive space. But, Joe, let's shift gears now. Talk to me about e-commerce. This is an interesting trend that I know you guys have been keeping your eyes on. What do you see on this front? Ryan, we're seeing the potential threat from oftentimes Chinese-based e-commerce sites. And the impact could be big, but we're also seeing how they're impacting what's happening with physical stores. And as e-commerce continues to penetrate and rise here in the U.S., it will lead to a further rationalization of physical stores. In fact, our analysis shows that it could translate into 50,000 store closures over time. I mean, that means there is a risk of emerging players coming in and being disruptive to the well-established marketplace, to the big traditional incumbents, to the mall-based retailers. Well, that could mean some of the remaining stores from those that have been well-operated, they're in a better position going forward. So who's necessarily at risk? Maybe a little surprising, but the low-dollar retail stores. Now, you think, why would they be at risk? Some people may be shopping through these e-commerce sites and saying, I want to get something just as cheap, and now it's easy to just get it delivered at home. What are some of the problems with that? The perception versus the reality. Well, the, the reality is that there could be long delivery times, even post-COVID. They could be two to three weeks. They may say overnight. That just means they're going out the door overnight. They're not going to be delivered overnight. And that means consumers are likely to use these outlets for very infrequent purchases and during important time periods of the year, such as the holidays. Also, inconsistent item quality could translate to lower, lower repeat rates for these e-commerce sites. So people are going to sample them, 
But then when they get them and they're not the quality they're expecting, they're not likely to repeat it, but they are going to try it. And in the meantime, that's going to have an impact on the big box stores and the return ability, right? Asking and checking to see if those returns can be easily done, maybe without cost. They have a certain window that they've got to be returned. But if the return experience is not good, not easy, that's probably going to have low customer satisfaction and not a repeat business. But we are watching to see how much market share they may garner and the impact that it has then on physical stores. Yeah, this is great, Joe. And it's especially timely because as we move into Q4 holiday season, like you mentioned, probably the biggest shopping time of the year, given the e-commerce landscape and the details you just laid out for us, how does that, how do you see that impacting retail, you know, when it comes to supply and demand, when it comes to uh, just kind of maybe even just some bottom line key takeaways of what you expect it to do for us uh, on the retail side of things? Yeah, some retailers will tell you anywhere from 30 to 50% of their profitability comes in the holiday season. So this is their this is their Super Bowl time of the year, right? The problem that we're seeing or hearing through research, Ryan, is that consumer holiday season outlook is deteriorating. One of the reasons, as you may know, you may remember, we've talked a little bit about this, is that student loans are going to pick back up again. That time has come. And so we ask consumers about their holiday season spending plans in July and September. And the percentage of consumers who said that they plan to spend less this holiday season actually jumped almost 9% more sequentially over the two time periods. So more people are then saying, I'm going to spend less this year. While the percentage of folks who said they were going to spend more was only about 3%. So that's about a 5% spread of spending less to spending more. That's the second highest drop, Ryan, in the last 12, 12 years. So that's a telling sign for us, right? The second part, though, is we not only have a bearish near-term view, we also have a bearish view for the next 12 months. And three factors are kind of driving this. One, market research is showing us that inflation remains a key issue for consumers. Two, the lapping of multiple forms of fiscal stimulus, right? As I mentioned, the end of the student loan repayment moratorium, that's now picking back up. The end of Medicaid benefits for potentially 12 or excuse me, 14 million Americans. And the lapping of 9.5 billion of California fiscal stimulus. So that's the end of the American Rescue Plan benefits. So there are several things that are all kind of kicking in at once. And the long and variable lags of the Fed rate hikes on the U.S. economy. So we've got several things that are kind of kicking in all at the same time. It's concerning consumers. And so they're saying we're going to spend less. Now, let me say this. We believe soft line stock prices can go much lower, right? Soft line, right? The, the casual clothes that you buy, right? That you're wearing now, that you wear on weekends, They've underperformed the S&P 500 by nearly 18% this year. And that's often the barometer everyone compares it against. So that's a benchmark. We want to compare it year over year. But still, okay, how does it compare for the S&P 500? But if you're asking, yes, investors are saying or believing, and our research is showing that we think softline stocks can go much lower. We believe both the sell side earnings per share estimates and the price 
per earning share, the PE, right? Price per earning. Well, now we see that's going to fall. <clears throat> Excuse me, going to fall. So we continue to have high conviction for soft line stocks and the rate of change over the long term, but the short term, the next 12 months, it can be tough sledding. So with that, we, are, we often urge caution here at this point. Yeah, there's no doubt that not only the next quarter is going to be interesting on this front, but like you just said, the next 12 months are going to be very telling in a lot of different ways for us that we'll obviously continue to keep an eye on together, Joe. Uh, one topic I do want to circle back on that we had discussed in our last, you know, market update on the Q2 sides of things was cruise lines. This, had a, you know, there's been a lot of talk about cruise lines in the headlines, a lot of folks looking towards them with, as you know, we're on the heels of COVID here. Talk to me about cruise lines, any update here? Yeah. So soft line stocks had uh, rough seas. Cruise lines have smooth sailing, if you will. Uh, pardon the puns, but I wanted to have a little fun there. Right. But they are starting to become part of the reality in the industry and becoming even healthier after COVID-19. The booking rates are much higher than they've been in years. Cruise line passenger volume is expected to reach 106% of 2019 levels in 2023. 31 million passenger sailings. That's a lot. And part of this, Ryan, is Cruise lines have said, look, we're not going to add new ships for a while, partly because they're having to pay off some debt that they borrowed during COVID. But they also want to keep capacity high on those ships before they start adding new ships. And that's giving them pricing power and to raise ticket prices. People are saying they want to have experiences and they're doing it. And so they're booking even further out in advance than they've done before. So we're starting to see the forecast is saying 80 to 95% of international tourist arrivals in the 2019 level. And that's booking already then for the future. So it's really impressive overall what we're seeing for the cruise lines. Wow. Wow. I, that really is interesting to hear. I'm, I'm curious, to, as I'm sure many of you guys are, to see how long that carries on, shall we say. But Joe, so kind of in summation, if we're looking at the retail side of things, I know you guys are looking at the numbers, the cold hard spreadsheets and whatnot. Do the numbers tell a tale for you guys? Is there anything that you're really extracting out of this that you want to share? Yeah, so through the third quarter, retail on a year-to-date basis is down just over 1%. They were down about 5 to 7 for the quarter. If you look at the cruise lines, you look at the airlines, that dynamic leisure and entertainment, that area is up. 5% through the year to date. But then also, we really didn't touch on it much this time. We did at the end of last quarter, home construction, Ryan. Remember, it was up big through, through the end of June, still up big through the end of September. Down three, home construction down three in the third quarter, still up over 30% year to date. So for all the rising interest rates, right, New home construction continues to be strong. And in talking to some of our realtor friends, they've even said they're seeing folks saying, well, I could buy this existing home, but they're getting a lot of perks and benefits from constructors, uh, contractors, uh, contractors getting into home construction and saying they're getting very good incentives. And that's why home construction is up 30% year to date. 
Wow. All right. So transitioning out of, of retail, kind of moving back into the financial sector side of things, what are the numbers telling you and your team on this front? Any big kind of highlights or takeaways here? Yeah. So quick summary is insurance has looked strong. The banks have had some issues, as you know, but that seems to have tapered off. So let's go back. At the end of June, we were talking about the regional banking problems and the and the concerns there. We kind of weathered that crisis through the spring. They were down a little bit more in the third quarter, about 5%. They're off about 30% year to date. Rising interest rates and pricing power has helped the insurance companies across the country. Sure enough, they're up slightly so far, 3% through the end of third quarter. So there is a little bit of a dichotomy, if you will, Ryan, in the financials. Big banks aren't getting hurt as much as the regional banks. They're off slightly. They were down. Financials were down about 5 to 10% in the third quarter. But the regional banks are the ones that dragged us down in through the first six months. Now we're starting to see that weakness spread a little further across all parts of the market. We'll go over those numbers in a second, but insurance has been the winner in financials. Joe, when it comes to employment, this is always a big topic, right? No matter what quarter we're talking about, what are you seeing on the employment side of things versus what we saw in Q2? Yeah, the labor market is not slowing down, I think, like the Fed had talked about. And it's the only time we're going to get labor reports from the Fed until their next meeting. And at this point, they've said, we don't need to hike right now. We're still monitoring it. So what were the numbers? You may have heard non-farm payrolls increased in September by 336,000 jobs. It was a surprise to see a number that large. The last two months reported an additional 119,000 jobs. What was unchanged? The unemployment rate, still at 3.8%. The Fed wanted to see that come up a little bit. The participation rate, right? The percentage of folks who are actively in the workforce, 62.8%. That's unchanged. Hourly earnings, it increased slightly from last month. 0.2% and it increased 4.2% over the last 12 months. So there's a little wage inflation still bubbling up in the marketplace. And the JOLTS number, the Job Opening and Labor Turnover Survey, surprisingly rose to 9.6 million unfulfilled jobs from 8.8 .8 million. So what's that telling us? There's still a lot of employers out there saying, we need help. And we're looking and we're struggling to find qualified workers or people that just even want to come to work. So it's not having the Fed's not having the effect on the labor market as they intended. So it seems like this economy is still fairly robust and cruising along as they as they thought they would have an intent. It hasn't had nearly as much of an impact yet. Well, yeah, that'll be interesting to see as time moves on, whether or not that number rises back to the expectations or if it maybe hovers or who knows. Uh, but Joe, you know, we talked about the, you know, specifically the the market as a whole a little earlier, but if we were going to dive into it a little more granularly and look back at where we were in Q2 and when last time you and I sat down to talk about this versus where we are now with specific avenues of the market, Walk through some of those numbers with us and, and what did, you know what kind of tail do these numbers say when we look directly at Q2 versus Q3? 
Yeah, Ryan, what we often, and we, we've told our clients this, that the markets often have a correction starting in August, accelerating in September, and bottom in October, right? And so sure enough, we saw the markets pull back in 10 of 11 sectors through the third quarter, ultimately. The Dow was up just under 4% for the year, the S&P right around 16%, the NASDAQ at 31%. The VIX, the volatility index, is still down for the year, although creeping up a little bit, right? And so generally, everything was down in the third quarter, ultimately. At the end of the third quarter, the Dow was only up one. The S&P was up 11. The NASDAQ was up 26. So we're starting to see that it had come down in the third quarter. Energy, as I mentioned, was up. 10% in the third quarter. It's the only thing that was up. Everything else was down in the third quarter. Real estate was down 10%. Utilities down nine. Consumer staples down seven. So things were down generally five to 10% in the third quarter. And we still have three generally big winners, communication services, technology, both up over 30% year-to-date, discretionary stocks up 25% year-to-date, Energy now positive for the year, industrials positive, materials positive, but financials, healthcare, consumer staples, real estate, and utilities are all now negative. And so people may be saying, well, my portfolio may be down a little bit. Why is that happening? Am I, if you're very diversified and fully balanced, not surprising to see those numbers coming close to break even after the third quarter. That's some good insight there, Joe. Appreciate you on that front. Uh, Joe, you and I, when we were sitting down going through Q2 a while back, we were talking about this COVID reopening trend and whether or not we'd see it continue or whether or not we'd maybe even kind of, it would end. Is it over or is that done with? Where do we stand here? Great question. I think we talk about it a little bit more than most other people. Why? Because we were looking at two things in particular, real estate and mass transit. What, why, why those indicators, right? Those are those cross currents that we talked about last time. It gives us an indication of what people are doing. And the New York Metropolitan Transit Authority talked about that their ridership is now at 70% of 2019 levels on the subway. So Ryan, just think about that. New York City, our country's biggest, right? City still only has subway riders at 70% of pre-COVID levels. So my son works there in the city. He's at work generally three, sometimes four days of work, working from home the other one or two days. So he matches that mass transit number for the most part. So if folks are working from home one to two days a week, now you can see why the ridership. But it's only recently is he back at work four days a week in the office. Whereas here in Texas, we've been in the office five days a week sometimes a little bit more, but five days a week, basically straight through COVID. So the reopening trade in New York and some of the bigger cities kind of on the coast have still had a reopening trade. Real estate still showing people are just coming back into the office. So that's why we're talking about that reopening trade. Why does that have an impact? When you talk about that, it's right, the convenience stores, the gas stations, the restaurants, that cross current of economic activity, you're still seeing it impacted. And maybe we're starting to see now finally businesses say, okay, 
we've reached our reopening processes, our modus operandi. What's our what's our our normal activity going forward? I think we're getting there, and now we'll see what happens going forward. Uh, really important point there, Joe. Uh, and one area that we haven't covered today, you know, to kind of round out today's conversation, which is a very important one, always that we look at on a quarterly basis, is the commercial and residential real estate side of things. So what's the outlook on those two fronts, Joe? Anything encouraging? Anything negative? What do you guys see? So we're still watching this, Ryan. Real estate was one of the sectors that did have a very negative output by stock market standards in the third quarter. And transaction activity in the commercial real estate market does remain very sluggish as prices are, are starting or trying to normalize to these higher interest rates. The power has shifted from borrowers to lenders who are now in a position to drive more attractive terms. So it is something that we're going to watch. That is, of course, if the owners continue to be able to pay those rates. We've not seen a, a huge increase in foreclosures, but it is something we're going to monitor and look at. Property values, which have soared about 30% over the last two years, up into July of 22, which was the last time we had that data, well, has now fallen 12% since, and with the bulk of those declines occurring in the first half of this year. And while cap rates have risen anywhere from 60 to 100 basis points, Depending upon the sector, the correction in values, Ryan, has likely further to catch up with the rise in interest rates. So we could see more commercial real estate correction coming, and that's thanks to our friends at FS Investments. And then anything on the residential side that's truly notable uh, that you know is a take-home, if you will, for our audience? Yeah, we talked about this or touched on this a little bit, talking with our real estate uh, broker friends, right? The raise in interest rates have really slowed the turnover of homes and the rise in prices. So now people that might have been looking at a four hundred or six hundred thousand dollar home, or maybe looking at three hundred to five hundred thousand dollar homes somewhere along the way, and that may have hampered new buyers from now through the end of the year. Certainly, the mortgage rate hikes have put a crimp on some of the activity. The new home purchase may be out of reach for some folks, especially first-time buyers, but that goes back to the some of the lenders or the construction companies are offering incentives for folks to get in so they can clear inventory somewhere along the way. The average three-year mortgage rate at the end of Q1 was about 6.48% versus now, Ryan, we're talking about 75 to 7.8%. It's a big increase, a 1% hike in less than a full calendar year. That's important to look at. That's the average three-year mortgage rate. Mm -hmm. So keep that in mind, right? Just national averages. The ongoing housing shortage, though, does make the market even more challenging for prospective buyers. So that puts that back in the hands of the home construction, which remember we just talked about was up 30% year over year. So we do look at this a lot. We know that this is driving consumer activity, consumer spending. So these are some of the numbers that we're looking at overall and something we're keeping our eyes on. Sure. And Joe, I mean, we're sitting down talking about it today here on the show for our audience, but I know you're having conversations just like this one with your clients and obviously how it 
you know, how it has a direct impact on their financial portfolio and their strategy within the market. For anybody out there that would enjoy a similar conversation, shall we say, with you and your team to see, you know, whether it's a stress testing of their financial portfolio and their investments currently, or just where their current plan stacks up, you know, against some of the avenues and aspects that we discussed today, what is the best way somebody can get in touch with you and your team to just open up that dialogue? Yeah, I, I, Ryan, I think it'd be great to give us a call, shoot us an email, we'll set up a time, there's no cost to chat, right? These are the things that we talk about not only to our clients, but we incorporate into the portfolios that we're running for clients. And we actively look at what's happening in the economy, happening in the markets, make the decisions either with clients or for clients, depending upon how they'd like us to be their financial advisor. We also help them understand how this impacts on their well-being, their financial picture, their estate plan, whatever it may be. We're happy to have those conversations with them. All right, fantastic. Well, Joe, look, you're a busy guy. You've got a lot of clients to serve. We're going to let you get back to doing that. But uh, thanks for carving some time out of your day and sharing a lot of wisdom. I know the team's been working hard to pull some of these numbers and information for you. So uh, looking forward to being back on the next one with you, though. Thanks, Ryan. Cheers. Cheers indeed, Joe. And hey, folks, look, we want to take one final moment, as we always do, and thank you all for stopping by and being with us on the show today. If you did take something away from today's discussion, I know we covered a lot, and you benefited from the uh, the conversation as a whole, make sure you subscribe then to the show on the platform that you checked us out on. That way you never miss out on future conversations just like these where Joe and I cover different wealth management topics as well as market updates like we did today. We hate to have you miss out on any of that beneficial information. Before Joe, I'm Ryan. We're going to go ahead and say so long. We appreciate you guys stopping by and being with us on Your Money and a Cup of Joe. This presentation is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice or the basis for making any investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed may not be those of UBS Financial Services Incorporated. UBS Financial Services Incorporated does not verify and does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of the information presented. This material is made available for use by CEG. Neither UBS Financial Services Incorporated nor any of its employees provide tax or legal advice. You should consult with your personal tax or legal advisor regarding your personal circumstances. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients, UBS Financial Services Incorporated offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC registered investment advisor and brokerage services in its capacity as an SEC registered broker dealer. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. It is important that clients understand the ways in which we conduct business, that they carefully read the agreements and disclosures that we provide to them about the products or services we offer. For more information, please review the PDF document at UBS.com slash relationship summary. UBS Financial Services Incorporated is a subsidiary of UBS AG, member FINRA, member SIPC. Joe Kaleo at Kaleo Wealth Management Group, UBS Financial Services Incorporated, office address 200 West Highway 6, Suite 400 in Waco, Texas, 76712.